the things that I care more about in education, like deeper learning, um, unfortunately, those these things aren't assessed in, in a way that our current systems uh, can operate. But if you can take criticism, you can give criticism in a positive, meaningful way, and that's been modeled to you lots of ways, then you start to really change the culture of the school. If you really boil it down and look at the way that students are using technologies, is that they're not using them for thinking, they're using them um, for, for the same rote memorization type of skills that they have been doing in the past. Now they just have a fancier way of doing it. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud, and today we have a wonderful guest on our show, Mark Barnett. Mark is a friend of mine and really a Renaissance man. Not only does he have great values, but he's also a project-based learning specialist, a consultant, a makerspace leader, a doctoral candidate, and again, just an all-around good human being. He's also really uh, an iconoclast in education. He likes to shake the tree and see what comes out uh, by really thinking about education and learning in completely non-traditional ways, in ways that question uh, the uh, order of things, the nature of assessment, the nature of learning, why we do things, with an emphasis, I would say, that he has on experiential learning, getting hands dirty, reflecting, failing, trying again, going back to the drawing board. I want to apologize again for the quality of the audio. My mic is coming hopefully this Saturday. I'm very excited. Uh, in the meantime, uh, there's also the normal nowadays Zoom lags that, uh, as I've mentioned before, require us to fill in the blanks of what our um, interlocutor is saying. It's a new skill, a cognitive skill that we all have to get used to, uh, a little bit like when we used to play Mad Libs as we were younger. But in the meantime, I like to leave a space for Mark, and I really hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Hello, I'm here with uh, Mark Barnett, uh, and I'm very excited to have you on the show, Mark. We've known each other for a few years, um, and I'm excited to talk about um, project-based learning, specifically your take on project-based learning. But first question is, just want to know a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you try to make a difference. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Uh, my name is Mark, and I currently live in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where I'm attending Chiang Mai University, um, seeking my PhD in computer engineering, specifically in the field of um, working with students in, in this um, framework of education called constructionism. Um, but uh, I've, I've kind of been working uh, in education for almost 15 years now, and and uh, majority of my work has uh, fitted around uh, the use of technology in a project-based learning environment. Um, you know, and I've kind of taught in the U.S. and all over the world, and I train teachers now in this process, and I help schools um, implement project-based learning and uh, train teachers on the pedagogy and help them um, implement projects. And um, it's, it's been a whole lot of fun. It's been a wild ride. I ask this of all of the people to whom we speak, simply because we want to create an idea uh, or shared understanding. What does learning mean to you? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, it's one that, that I actually um, really, really like to answer. Um, and I guess first I'll, I'll talk about what learning isn't. Um, and learning um, the way it's been done for the last several um, few decades in schools, it, it looks like learning. You know, we, we, children they learn concepts and there's uh there's standards and there's math and there's science and, and all these things but i think what, what we're really teaching children to do is how to obey how to conform uh and how to um 
to kind of like be puppets, I guess. Uh, but for me, I think that, that learning uh, is, is kind of the opposite of that. So if you, if you take the root word education, education, the root word of it is to induce. Uh, and to induce means to elicit the latent potential that is already inside of you. So if we look at education in that way, learning should be about um, participating in experiences that help you to uncover all of those illicit values and things that are already inside of you. Um, so in, in that regard, I consider my work uh, and I consider my profession to be a learning experience designer instead of a teacher uh, or an educator. And you do a lot of work with uh, project-based learning, problem-based learning. Um, it's 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 a concept that's thrown around that's done more or less well, more or less effectively, with more or less uh, scaffolding and uh, and uh, authentic projects for the students. What's your take on PBL, and, and specifically, how do you see it as as a means to take learning deeper? Given given what you're what you're bringing up, what you've talked about in terms of a. Uh, of, um, of, of education uh, and, and what it could be, should be? Well, for me, it started when I was a student. Um, and at the time, the, the term project-based learning didn't even exist. Um, and uh, I, I knew it and I felt it as soon as, as, soon as uh, I was immersed in a project. So my seventh grade science teacher um, asked me to do a, um, a wildlife field research study on um, Texas ecology, which is where I was from. And um, I had to go in and visit these certain parks and these certain areas around the city. And I had to do wildlife field research and I had to collect samples and uh, eventually make a field guide notebook. Um, that was the presentation and was the final grade for this pro this project, uh, and I had to collect samples like wildflowers and um, you know you know check the water and all these kind of things, and then put together kind of like a lab report at the end of that. And that was the first time I'd ever had that kind of experience in, in education. And as a matter of fact, it's the single only artifact from my entire K twelve education that I still have to this day. You know, like who keeps all the, you know, their old spelling bees and, and math papers and all that kind of stuff. Nobody, but this thing I treasure because it was so important to me. And I can't say that I ever actually cared anything about Texas wildflowers or, or, you know, these kind of things, but through that project, I became really interested in it. Um, and so that, that kind of like hit me really hard as a kid. And like, I, I knew just fundamentally that like, this is the way education should be. And I even remember telling my teachers uh, in other classes, why can't we do cool stuff like this? Why, why, can't, why can't education be more like this instead of you know, reading textbooks and this kind of stuff? So I, I knew from a very young age that, that that's the way education could, should be because it reached me and I saw it reach all of my peers. Um, so, you know, it, when I was older and I started to work in the field of education, I started to realize that there was a whole pedagogy and, uh, you know, a, a system for, you know, how to instruct with this. And it's called project-based learning. Um, and it, it, has the, it has that same power to affect other children the same way it affected me. So when you design a, a PBL unit or, or even a subunit or maybe a greater you know, experience, um, and I don't know how I feel about that word unit because it, it feels so constrained and, and it doesn't allow it to flow into other areas, um, uh, you know, which, which really um, yeah, it should if we're going to transfer those skills. But let's just see a, a, a PBL experience. How, guide us through it. What's, what's the process of how you construct it, how you visualize it, how you implement it? Maybe you can give us some examples and, and then and going into how those experiences maybe you've witnessed 
kids have maybe light bulb moments or maybe kids going through struggles or, or just, just maybe, maybe a few stories in, the, in this area? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll just kind of walk through uh, one of my really favorite projects of the last couple of years that, that I conducted at the Harbor School um, in Hong Kong, uh, which is where we met, and um, in a group of fourth graders. So um, the way that I conduct PBL is um, I, I try to come up with the, the theme, first of all. And so I was working with the fourth grade uh, teachers, and we kind of discussed some possible themes that we could kind of uh, bring a project together. And one of the, the themes that they had already planned to teach um, was about uh, the, you know, the, the, the lifestyle of you know, the Roman period. Uh, you know, fr from, you know, the social classes to the monetary system and, and you know, all the way down to artifacts and the ways that they cook. And so I thought, you know, this is such a great topic. There's so much we could explore in here. And so at the time I was teaching in a makerspace. And so we had access to tools and equipment to build and make things. So all of my projects revolved around building or making things in context of the learning. So we put our heads together uh, and we looked at the social studies standards for you know, this particular unit of study about the Roman Empire. And uh, we decided that we would um, have the students um, build and create um, um, weaponry artifacts. Uh, it's kind of a gray area in education where, you know, weapons. But uh, myself as an amateur historical reenactor, uh, I can find lots of ways to make it, you know, more to, to, to uh, you know, be valuable to learning instead of the focus on the weapon. Uh, and we, we even had discussions about, you know, uh, you know, in modern times, we wouldn't necessarily need to result to using weapons because we have new ways of dealing and coping with things. Um, but we had the students um, design and make uh, period accurate Roman shields and spears, but with kind of a safe um, lens on it. So instead of using metal uh, spear tips, we made wooden spear tips and talked about how we could make those more safe and accurate. Um, so it all kind of started with the, with the content. The students already, were already planning to learn about this, but they were probably going to watch a video or some other experience that may have been uh, not, not as concrete and not as uh, you know, hands-on. So um, the way that we conducted the, the class is that uh, the social studies teacher for grade four actually came into the space with the students, and the social studies teacher kind of taught some of the background, some of the history, but they did that inside of my makerspace. Uh, so it became like a collaborative teaching environment. And I think, and what I recommend to most schools that I train is that PBL is best done when it's done collaboratively with other teachers and other subject areas so we can get you know, that cross-curricular integration. Um, so then you know, once the kids had some background knowledge about um, the, you know, the, the period and the concepts and uh, you know, how the Roman army conducted their, um, their, their battles and you know, what kind of tools they needed and safety equipment, um, we actually had the students make spears and spear tips and uh, make, you know, make the shields, paint them and all this kind of stuff and look at the traditional ways of painting. Um, but the, the culminating events for this activity was to uh, do some battle reenactments. Uh, so the Roman army are really famous for certain uh, field strategies. Um, and so they would use their shields and their spears uh, for, for battle tactics. And, you know, they're, they're, they're some of the ones that are, that are more famous, um, kind of like the shield wall. And you've probably seen this in a movie of some kind where, you know, hundreds of soldiers are standing all in the line and they've got their shields up. Well, that was a real Roman battle tactic. Uh, another one is, call, is called the tortoise shell, where they all crouch down and they make a huge dome with their shields. So we had students practice these kind of different formations, but in a, in a reenactment kind of way. Uh, and so I dressed up and, you know, kind of had a lot of gear because of my background in, in the reenactment world. And uh, we, we had some reenactments out in, out in the field. But the other thing that was really fun is that we set up a dummy target 
we let students launch those spears into that target. Uh, and, and most students had never in their life thrown a spear, a spear before. Uh, so that tactile experience was quite fun for them and engaging for them. Um, and and you know, just like we, just like in the real army, sometimes those spears would break in, you know, in, in battle and we would uh, you know, mend them on the spot and have little stations of kids who would do that part of it and other, other ones who would you know, prepare the line and that kind of stuff. So it became a fully immersive experience for them. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've even ran into some of these students, you know, later a couple of years ago, and they still remember this event, you know, and, uh, you know, tell me about how, you know, I still have my spear in my room. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's one of those kind of things that you don't forget. But someone's going to ask you, I'm going to play, um, I'm not even going to play devil's advocate. I'm just going to say what I imagine a lot of traditional teachers are going to, going to listen and they're going to say, well, wait a second, what are they learning? Where's the, where's the content? Where, where, what's the bigger understanding? What would you say to them? Well, yeah, so it, it goes back to, uh, if, we, if we look at the standards in the social studies unit about, uh, you know, the R Roman ways of life. Uh, so we, we learned about uh, Roman army, um, the, 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 the sequence of, of like the leadership, you know, there's the liege and the commanders and then the army and all those. Um, we learned a little bit about the, the tools that they used. And so um, the construction techniques, uh, we learned about the symbols and the symbology that they use in their shields. And so, you know, all of that content um, really came to life because the students had to participate in it and, and do it themselves. And they remember yeah, it. They remember it. So uh, you know, it's, it's like it's content that's alive. It's you know, more alive than it could be by watching the video or, or reading from a textbook. And now I'm, I'm a firm believer, yeah, in, in when, when you do something, it, it creates connections in your brains that, that wouldn't um, be made otherwise. And, and you know, there's, there's a lot of people who are a lot more knowledgeable than I am about these concepts. But one of the things I would also say, maybe in later grades, and, and maybe I'm, I'm diverging on this one or, or going a little bit on a tangent, but you know, as a historian, one of the best ways you learn history is to read literature. One of the best ways to learn history is just to actually build something, try something, um, uh, simulate it, and whatever. It, it's, it's just a, a completely different experience. Um, particularly if they're learning about those symbols, there's, there's a reason to learn about those symbols. Yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't just, um, you know, copy this. You know, we really we really had to learn about what what do each of the symbols mean and why would why would a certain uh, member of the army have this symbol compared to another symbol and if they did where would they stand in the formation and why would they have that line position? What about assessment? How do you assess learning in this context? Um, that's a great question. Um, so you know, I, I use a rubric that I give to the students and I give this to them uh, ahead of time so that they're well aware of you know, what they're being assessed on. And the rubric will assess them um, you know, on, on their understanding of the content, um, their expression um, of the things that they create, their creativity, and then finally their um, oral presentation. So at the end, they have to kind of demonstrate their understanding of the concepts and the knowledge. Um, so the rubric would then uh, be used throughout the PBL unit and then at the end um, for assessment purposes. And the, the rubric that I would use um, kind of has a feedback mechanism into it so that the, you know, the teacher is writing narrative feedback uh, you know, on the rubric, giving that back to the student for you know, a conversation or reflection piece. So we have this idea of PBL. We have this idea of experiential learning about how it imprints things differently in your mind. Why do you think more schools don't do PBL? Why do you think that it's not present in so many institutions? Because it's messy uh, and it's it's difficult to to wrap your head around and uh, and it requires some kind of some some leadership to um, to take to take the the, the jump into project based learning uh, and you know I think that there are, there are just a lot of um, 
people stuck in, in old ways of doing things. You know, it's easy to just follow the standards and follow the textbook and follow, you know, the, you know, the IB curriculum. If you're at one of those schools or follow some other, you know, handed down curriculum. Um, but, you know, for me as a teacher, like um, I always wanted to, to toss the textbook in the trash and make my own lessons. So that's just, that's just kind of the, the, the tenacity that I have. Um, but it's, it's, I think the biggest obstacle is um, just, how, how different it is. It's very different from traditional education. So it requires a whole different way of thinking and operating. And, you know, it requires some, some log- logistical changes, allowing teachers to work together and work over longer periods of time. Um, you know, instead of having, instead of working in 45 minute blocks, like a lot of schools do, uh, project-based learning kind of lends itself to, you know, to working long, longer periods of time. Um, so it re- it's, it's a really big group effort to launch project-based learning at, at, a, at a whole campus. So what's the best way to start? Um, the best way to start is to just jump right in and do it. <laughs> um, my suggestion to schools that are interested in doing project-based learning is to first get some training um, and, you know, get, get your head wrapped around the pedagogy of it, how to assess it, how to build lessons, how to write rubrics, then do a project. Um, and so usually I'll tell schools, um, you know, after a training, you know, spend, spend the next three months thinking about how to pull this off and then do a two week long project or a one week long project and then reflect and, and, and think about what worked and what didn't work and how can we do another one better. Uh, so it, I'll ask them to then, you know, maybe in the next semester, let's do another one and, you know, and, and try to build on what you did before and, and learn from that. And then if, 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 if they really like that and they're thinking like, hey, we want to do more of this, I'll kind of coach them through how to develop more uh, you know, cross-curricular connected units so that in their second year, they might do three projects in, in, in the fall term and three projects in the spring term. And then after that, uh, you know, in, in the third year, maybe I would can try to convince them to do PBL 100% of the time, you know, full PBL all day, every day for the whole year. And how do you think a school will look like? Like, could you imagine a school that does PBL the whole time? We don't have to imagine it. They exist. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to see. It's transformative to walk into a school that's doing project-based learning 100% of the time. Uh, and, and there's more and more of them now uh, all over the world. So uh, it's, it's definitely not um, uh, you know, a bizarre you know, behind-the-walls concept. You know, it's, it's gaining momentum. So let's, let's, let's imagine that we are walking through the doors or some kind of, you know, maybe they don't even have doors, right? But, but walking in this space where it's a PBL, 100% PBL school, what's going on? What does it look like? What does the messiness look like? And how do we make sense of that messiness? Um, so it, it's, um, it, it's messy in a way that, um, you know, there's, there's not a traditional schedule and, and students are working across grade levels, maybe they're working in different groups. Um, you've got math teachers and science teachers working in the same classroom together. You've got social studies teachers and English teachers working on a project together. And um, you've got students who have given 15 uh, public oral presentations in, in a year who, who has started to develop self-esteem about themselves. And so you, you not only, you know, kind of like, it looks, it looks chaotic, but you're raising the bar for, for every single child at the school who, who participates in this. And um, in, in project-based learning, there's a, there's a protocol that uh, we, we ask students to start to give each other feedback uh, and, and, and be critical to each other, but in a way that's positive. And what I've noticed at schools that, that are doing 100% project-based learning is that this critical culture starts to infuse itself into the dialogue of the students. And so that they are, they, they are able to give themselves criticisms about things that are not related to school, but they can do so in a positive way. Uh, and, you know, so, so much of bullying that happens in schools, if you really boil it down to, 
to its root, it probably started with some form of criticism and someone being offended by that. And then, you know, up in the ante and back and forth, and then you escalate into something big. But if you can take criticism and you can give criticism in a positive, meaningful way, and that's been modeled to you lots of ways, then you start to really change the culture of the school, not just the education culture, but the you know, the emotional culture. And, and I'm really fascinated by, by two things that you brought up. One is the uh, the breaking down of, of the grades and having people from different ages that, that collaborate, work together and build something. And I, I want to put that on the shelf for just a second. But this idea of, 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 uh, of, of reflection, of being able to assess oneself, others, provide feedback or feed forward in ways that are, that are positive and constructive. Um, tell, tell me more about your thoughts on on kids assessing themselves and how we can, um, uh, as, 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 as adults or people within education, let go of, of, of that sense of control and, and let the kids drive that themselves and what the benefits are. Sure. Um, most of the time, that sounds really crazy to people when, when, I, when I mentioned that uh, we, you know, we should be doing a, a bit of self-assessment. And there's a, there's a negative culture that's, that's prevailed around assessment. And uh, it's stigmatized in, in children and stigmatized in parents who've grown up through systems of assessment. And assessment means everything. And getting straight A's is the only important thing that there is to do in, in schooling. Um, and, and it takes a lot of effort to shift that thinking with students uh, and parents as well. Um, but it, it, it can be really powerful when, once you are able to communicate the, per, the real purpose of assessment. And the way that assessments are currently being done is that they're used as a, as a judgment. And so if you get a C, like you or your heart drops and you feel like horrible inside, right? But in, in project-based learning, um, you know, uh, uh, the grade that you get at the end is just the, the thing that we put in the, in the grade book, you know, but what the, the real transformation that happens for assessment is the, is the critical feedback that's given to the student and the feedback that they have about themselves and that conversation that we have together about, you know, the outcomes of their projects, how well did they do, what could they have done better. And what students start to see is that those conversations aren't judgments but they're, they're pedestals. It's a way to help that student uh, move forward, to, to uh, learn from mistakes, to learn from failures, and to use that as a, as a way to, to move forward after that. And that we shouldn't feel negative about ourselves because there was a critical, a, a negative criticism. A negative criticism just means this is an area where I need to work. This is an area that's a weakness. This is an area that I can excel in the future. And there's a lot of talk in, in, in this realm also about you know, growth mindsets. Uh, so I make sure to you know, address that you know, when you talk about assessment in, th- in through PBL, that growth mindset should be a part of that conversation. And going back to this idea of uh, mixed, mixed age, mixed grades, what are the benefits? What are the challenges of that? Something that I find particularly interesting uh, because it's not just about ability level, but maybe about interest, about collaboration, about socio-emotional growth, about, about empathy, about communication. There's, there's so much out there, formal and informal research, observations that, 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 that speak to, to its benefits. What are some experiences with that? What works? What doesn't work? Um, I think you can shift about three grades in any direction at any time. Um, so, you know, I don't typically recommend that ninth graders and first graders work together uh, unless the ninth graders are building something specific for first graders. But, you know, first graders and third graders or ninth graders and seventh graders working together, that's not a big leap um, because there, there are so many variances in, in um, you know, emotional intelligence levels. You know, I, I, might, I might have a seventh grader who's got the emotional intelligence of a 12th grader, I might have a 12th grader with the emotional intelligence of a seventh grader. 
you know, they'll find a middle ground in there somewhere. Uh, so I think it's completely arbitrary that we have, you know, such strict um, guidelines or, you know, borders on grade levels and ages. Um, so, you know, for me, I think that there's the, a, a three-year kind of uh, interplay with that seems to work well. Let's shift a little bit to technology. Um, I mean, you know, a lot of people see technology innovation as the same or the use of technology and innovation as the same thing. I see a lot of jobs out there that are director of innovation and technology, which, which works very well. And certainly I know, and I know of, uh, of, of uh, a couple of guys in particular who make that work very, very well, but sometimes it's just about using technology for technology's sake. How do we use technology? Is it an end? Is it a, a, um, a means? How do you see that role, particularly given the fact that, that you are so experienced in, in coding and in, in, in bringing those, those, uh, those things to the, to, the, to, the, to the world of learning? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it, it, it really is easy to confuse the use of technology for innovation. I can, I can put 3D printers and laptops and, and all kinds of robots in a classroom and, and you might walk into that classroom and you would be really, you know, be dazzled by what all the kids are doing. It's so amazing. They're building robots and 3D printing. It looks really cool. It's so innovative. Um, but if all they're doing is copy and pasting and, and uh, using applications that were pre-baked, um, then it's no different than, than uh, you know, reading, reading a textbook or making something out of Play-Doh. Um, it's just a fancier way of doing that. So to, to combat that, I, I firmly believe that technology should be, be used as a tool for thinking. And if technology is not being used as a tool for thinking, then it's just another, it's another toy. It's another tool. It's another, you know, it's another textbook. Um, and this, is, this has been baffling me for years is that, you know, we see such uh, strong cases and people, you know, absolutely say that technology is what children must be using and it's the future and you know, 21st century learning must include uh, all, all of these concepts. But you know, if, if you really boil it down and look at the way that students are using technologies, it's that they're not using them for thinking, they're using them um, for, for the same rote memorization type of skills that they have been doing in the past. Now they just have a fancier way of doing it. That's not always the case, but it certainly is the case in, in a lot of places. So you know, everywhere that I am and everywhere that I try to affect, I, I ask people to think about how, how can we use the technology as a material, as a tool for thinking. Um, and this is a very constructionist approach, by the way, um, to think about technology in this way. And you know, for, for, for that reason, uh, some of the technologies that I, that I do use, I'm very particular about. Um, I want my students to be uh, creators with technology instead of just users of technologies. Uh, and a lot of um, proprietary softwares don't allow you to do that. So I'm a very you know, a proponent of um, open source softwares and things that, allow, that you can tinker with and take it apart and see how it works on the inside and uh, modify it and change it. Because if, if you're using it in that way, you're using it as a tool to think with instead of just you know, using it for you know, whoever, whoever designed it to, to its intent. And once again, we're stuck with the systems problem here because so many teachers have their supervisors walk in a room and they are being observed slash assessed based on their use of ICT. Are you using ICT if, you know, and whether or not it's effective, I mean, that's, that's another, another concept altogether because you can only measure that over time, certainly not over 45 minutes, but it's, are you using ICT? Put kids behind iPads, tick that mark, even though they might just be drawing uh, with, with, a, with a Apple Pencil. 
Um, so so there's, 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 there's a systemic issue. So, so this, this, this kind of brings us back to, to this idea of how do you um, balance um, uh, the idea of, of learning, deeper learning, which is so intangible, so difficult to observe with making sure that uh, the, the school reaches its objectives, the, the, the parents reach their objectives, the, the students, the teacher, all, all these things come together or maybe don't, but at least flow together, um, given the fact that it's so incredibly difficult to, to, to measure, to assess learning. Well, it, it is diff- it's very difficult because the instruments in which we use to assess learning are, don't, don't assess learning. They, they, they assess memorization and they assess uh, process to a degree. Um, so, you know, the things that I care more about in education, like deeper learning, um, unfortunately, those, these things aren't assessed in, in a way that our current systems uh, can operate. So, you know, we're fundamentally flawed there because we are, we're working inside of a system that, that, uh, that, that, that doesn't serve the students in a way that allows them to have deeper learning because um, they're only expected to, um, to demonstrate learning on, on an assessment level, which is not, which is not deep learning. It's, a, it's surface learning. And, and particularly if the unit is planned out to the point where you've got your assessment uh, that you see eight weeks from now, even though you might not necessarily know where the kids are going to go, what they need, where their interests are. You've already got your assessment. I got my summative assessment. It's in eight weeks. They're doing this. And it might not be an authentic project. It might be a test. Um, but then, then you're doing everything to, to, to put them on that, on that one piece of paper that you're giving them eight weeks down the road. Listen, I want to really thank you for, for your time. Uh, this has been absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm so, so excited here. But, but what I do want to do is give you the opportunity to tell us a little bit more about what your plans are, what your projects are, uh, what you're up to, um, and, and just you know how people can get in contact with you and so forth. Sure. I've, I've got my, um, my hands on, on several irons right now. So um, I'm, uh, I'm currently the vice president of education for a company called BSD Education. Uh, we have an office in Hong Kong and Thailand and the U.S., and uh, we um, design curriculum for schools that teaches um, technology education, computer science kind of things. So I'm, I'm really you know, working the helm here to make this type of education more constructionist based. So the students are doing real work using real computer programming languages, but in a meaningful way uh, and allowing them to kind of express their own creativity and go deeper if they want to. Um, in my PhD work, uh, I'm studying machine learning and how children interact with machine learning by getting them to think about their own cognitive biases. So, you know, we all walk around with these biases all the time and we aren't, aren't even aware of them sometimes. And so um, my, my research is looking at if we can um, show students how machines learn, we can think about how we learn and machines have a built in bias and we can even program that bias. Well, is there, do our brains can, is there a cognitive bias that we can kind of tweak with in our own minds? And can we shift our thinking um, about our biases to something new or something different by learning about that process? So that's, uh, that's, t- that's research that's, that's ongoing. Uh, so, you know, in the next two or three years, I might present or publish some work around that. Uh, and then also I, I work as an independent consultant and I travel around the world. Well, before COVID, now I travel around the world on Zoom and uh, I help schools transition to project-based learning. Uh, and, and specifically schools who want to take it seriously and eventually get themselves to a place where they want it, where they are 100% project-based learning, of which I kind of helped um, them on a three-year journey 
from no project-based learning to 100%. How do people get a hold of you then? Um, most people reach out to me on Twitter, strangely. Uh, so I get a, a lot of uh, traction going on there on Twitter. Uh, LinkedIn is another great way to reach out to me. Uh, on Twitter, uh, my handle is Bark, B-A-R-K, Marnett, M-A-R-N-E-T-T. It's just my first and last uh, initial switch there. Uh, and I share it on there quite a bit, so it's also some good content that you might find. Fantastic. Well, listen, thanks so much, Mark. Really appreciate your time. Sure. Yeah, it's been great. I want to thank Mark for being on the show. I'm really looking forward to having a part two of this, uh, one that will probably stretch my learning, stretch my knowledge uh, in terms of his uh, work on machine learning, how it affects the brain, how we can take machines and technology forward in order to provide experiences that um, are going to lead to deeper learning in ways that actually prepare us for uh, the changing world uh, rather than going back to the traditional ways that have been there for the past 130 years. Um, So looking forward to that. In the meantime, I want to thank you for joining us. This has been the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I've been your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud, and look forward to having you join us on our next show. If you'd like to reach me, please do so on LinkedIn or by email. The website is www.coconut-thinking.design. See you soon.